MSW Media. So, Renato, what do you think of the indictment that was unsealed today in Manhattan? <sighs> it's complicated. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent and a legal and national security analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. So, Asha, here we are. It's late, late night, uh, the night of the indictment. You've got your wine. I I am so tired. I'm like, I can't do wine because I don't know if I could make it through the podcast if I uh, if I was drinking wine. So I have like a sparkling water mocktail. Um, to try to catch the spirit of the wine without having wine. I noticed I'm going to note you don't have fries, don't have fries. so it's it's not like I'm missing out on wine yeah. and fries. But this is sort of like a wine and fries chat. It is, and it it is complicated. I have to say, when I when I look at this indictment, I mean, I I will just say that since our last podcast, I've spent a lot of time talking to former uh, Manhattan assistant district attorneys. Uh, and public defenders uh, and uh, anybody I, I could talk to who has a lot of experience in the Manhattan criminal defense bar uh, trying to get as much insight as possible. Uh, and I've done that today as well. Um, since the in-between TV hits and radio hits, we could talk more about all that craziness that we've both been doing later. But I have to say my, my views about this uh, indictment are complicated uh, because while um, some of my conversations have led me to believe that the, some concerns that I and others have had maybe are a little unfounded, that the law is a little better in Manhattan than I thought. There's some unusual things going on here, and um, I, I wish that the indictment was drawn up a little differently uh, than it was. I mean, one thing you and I have been talking about um, is that it's not even entirely clear to us what the uh, other crimes are here that are being referenced, and exactly what uh, Alvin Bragg's legal theories are, and I'm, I'm sure you can explain that better than I can even at this at this time of night. Yeah, so I'll be honest with you. When this got unsealed and we finally got a hold of it, I was kind of disappointed. I was like, am I missing something? And I texted you, and I was like, uh, is it just me, or does it seem a little, you know, thin on you know, the, the law here. And you said, no, it's not just you. And you said you were conferring with some of your other um, Manhattan lawyers with the scoop. And we'll get to that in a second. But basically what was released today were two documents. One is the indictment, which lists out 34 counts. Basically, this is just count one, count two, count three. And they all center around falsification of business records. Every count involves either a check an entry in the Trump organization ledger or an invoice that was submitted by Cohen for falsely claiming legal fees in return for payments that were really reimbursement installments for the hush money that he paid to Stormy Daniels. Along with this was a 12-page statement of facts. 
statement of facts is interesting because it goes beyond the Stormy Daniels reimbursements. It's not just, you know, this is how they repaid it. It was putting it in the context of this bigger operation that was set in motion by Trump and AMI, the parent company of National Enquirer, um, several months before the election to keep an eye out for stories that could be detrimental to Trump and basically catch and kill. And one thing that I thought was surprising in the statement of facts was that, you know, we knew that in addition to Stormy Daniels, uh, the Manhattan DA was looking into the Karen McDougal story. This is the Playboy Bunny. But then we saw the story about the Trump doorman, tower doorman Mm -hmm. who had a story about the child that was fathered out of wedlock. And I remember the rumors about this, but like they kind of put it together as a pattern, um, a a bigger operation scheme that was going on um, in which Stormy Daniels um, payments were made. And then in his press conference, basically uh, the DA, Alvin Bragg, basically laid out the story that he's going with, which is that you know, this was basically an attempt to influence the election and conceal facts that would have been otherwise material to voters and then to conceal the fact that they had paid money to bury these stories. That's pretty much it. Right. Now, you mentioned the statement of facts. And one thing I'll just mention is from all my conversations with lawyers who practice regularly in Manhattan and just just so everyone understands why I'm, I'm doing that, and why that's so important is I have a, a you know, I have a pretty substantial white collar criminal practice and I practice all over the country. But most of my cases are in federal court. I do have state court cases, but most of those are in California and Illinois, not in New York. And I think it's really important to understand the jurisdiction. So from talking to lawyers in Manhattan, um, you know, having a fairly bare bones indictment is not entirely unusual where there's not a conspiracy count. It's not really a surprise. And some of the other boroughs don't even have the statement of facts thing. So that's something that they do in Manhattan. But one thing that's really interesting here is that, you know, you mentioned falsification of business records. And as we've explained in prior podcasts, that's usually a misdemeanor. It becomes, goes from a second degree to the first degree and become a, a felony, a class E felony, only when done in furtherance of other crimes. But one thing that's interesting here is that Nowhere in the indictment or in the statement of facts does it specify what those other crimes are. Now, when I've, you know, that's really bizarre and problematic because, of course, that's really important here, right? Going from a misdemeanor to a felony. And so there are lines in, for example, this, there's a line in the very beginning of the statement of facts that says, you know, that talks about you know, tax purposes. It says that the participants also took steps that mischaracterized for tax purposes the true nature of the payments made in furtherance of the scheme. But it never cites a tax statute, never makes clear what tax laws are potentially they were trying to violate here, they intended to violate, or even really what the nature of the tax crime would be or like what their theory is. And it really gives me the impression that perhaps the DA is leaving their options open. Now, I will note, you know, that when I've had conversations with you and other people, we've been trying to figure out what exactly the tax crime is. It's not entirely clear, 
But the DA in his press conference made some references to statutes. And he also, both in terms of tax crime and election uh, campaign finance crime. But I, I will say that none of that is in the the statement of facts of the indictment itself. It's just sort of what he's telling the press, which I, I think is somewhat problematic. Yeah, except for that, with regard to the tax crime, except for that one line in paragraph two. It says the participants also took steps that mischaracterized for tax purposes the true nature of the payments made in furtherance of the scheme. That's it. And then the the rest of the statement of facts don't ever reference or t- like there's no, there's nothing in the fact pattern that comes back to that. That's like, you know, and then they, you know, mark this in the same category as a deduction or Michael Cohen filed a tax return falsely inflating his income. Like th- there's nothing that I saw that ties back to that particular line. Right. There's in paragraph 25, they say that, hey, the CFO of the Trump organization doubled the amount so that he could characterize the payment yes. as income on his tax returns. But what's odd about that, the way that, first of all, it doesn't say that he in fact did so or anything else, but it sounds like what they're suggesting is that Michael Cohen would over-report his income, which I suppose it is a false statement on a tax return. But first of all, we don't know, is this a federal or state offense that they're referring to? What offense is it? Okay, we don't know. And from reading this, and then if if that's the crime that they were intending to commit, the crime would be to overpay your taxes, which I'm just going to tell you as somebody who has tried uh, tax cases and I indicted tax cases and I defend tax cases now, uh, that's a really difficult case to bring to a jury where it's like, yeah, the government was, you were intending to pay the government too much in taxes, um, you know, most jurors would have trouble believing that that's actually someone's intent. Yeah. And so I think like just the basic issue here is we have a fact pattern and facts are great, but you need a law to which to apply the facts to see whether the facts actually meet the elements of the crime that you're charging. And we don't really accept beyond that initial threshold falsification of business documents or business records. We don't have, because it'll matter, right? Like you just said, is it federal? Is it state? Is it campaign finance? Is it tax? Is it filing a false instrument? I mean, it, it does matter. And so my question was, I mean, I was kind of, to be honest, I was a little annoyed for, you know, like on Trump's behalf, because I was just imagining as a defense lawyer, I'd be like, what the hell is this? Like, how do you know, like, what, where do you start um, even, you know, making sense of like how you're going to put together a defense? And so I'm curious, I know that the defense can request a bill of particulars. And what would that look like? I looked up the statute. I think they can request it. And technically Bragg would be required to respond to it within like 15 days. That's right. And I expect that to be the first motion that the defense is going to file here is a motion for a bill of particulars. At least I would, uh, because otherwise they're basically allowing Bragg to, I guess, crowdsource his theory or at least to keep his options open, right? <laughs> he can really pursue any theory he wants about tax or campaign finance because he hasn't technically specified it in the indictment. Um, and he, you know, so a, bi- a bill of particulars is essentially the defendant saying, hey, you have not in the indictment put me on notice regarding what crime you have charged me with. 
And ordinarily, to be very blunt, uh, motions for a bill of particulars are total BS, usually. Okay. In most, most of the time when defendants do that, it's essentially a way, it's a vehicle for making points to the judge and, you know, telling a story that you want the judge to be keyed in on a weak spot in the case or something along those lines. But usually, you know, the, the defendant has a pretty good idea that this, you know, 30, 30 page conspiracy indictment or whatever is what, you know, it is what the government says it is. And, you know, maybe there's some confusion about one small point, but it's not really material. They, they have enough there to put them on notice. That's all they really need is enough to put them on notice. But here I've actually, for the first time in my career, I've read an indictment where I'm like, yeah, I have really don't know if I was in their shoes, what I'm defending here. Um, I, I mean, I'm sitting here, I don't know what to comment on because I'm not even sure exactly what the, what Bragg's theory is. And from talking behind the scenes, I think there's some people who really think that he is leaving his options open, open. So the defense should absolutely pin him down because while Bragg did make a bunch of statements in the press conference and cite some statutes, he's not, it's not clear that he's locked down. In that, and even those statements were pretty vague. I mean, in, in other words, it's one thing to state a particular statute and say that that's what he's violating. I mean, that's certainly better than not, which which is not in the indictment or statement of facts. Did he state a particular statute? He, I thought he only very generally referred to like state and federal election crimes. He did state some statutes, but he only stated them in a press conference, and he didn't really explain how they tied in. So how they tied into, you know, the, the, the factual allegations. In other words, when you, when you charge an indictment, so, you know, he mentioned, I'll give you one example. He mentioned, um, the, you know, the participants scheme was illegal. This is his words. The scheme violated New York election law, which makes it a crime to conspire to promote a candidacy by unlawful means, which is sort of quoting or paraphrasing a particular line. In New York election law, apparently seventeen one fifty two. Yeah, and I looked that up, and is that weird? Like, I was just trying to piece it together with any of those counts, right? Well, all of this is sort of a bit self-referential, right? I mean, this the the essentially these are falsification of business records with the intent to further a scheme. Which under to conspire to promote a candidacy by unlawful means. Well, yes. what's unlawful? What's the unlawful right. means? And by the way, that statute that I'm just that they brag cited is a is a misdemeanor that only has a two year statute of limitations. So it's like we're we're you know taking a misdemeanor, we're mixing it up with a misdemeanor, and like in the salad, you know, a little salad chopper, and then out comes a felony. I, I don't know. It, it's. I mean, if I, you know, if I was defending this, um, I would, I would be very critical. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know what to make of that, but there's no question the defense is going to file a motion for, well, I don't know if there's a question. I mean, Trump's actually got some good lawyers now. Um, you know, there's this, there's this lawyer from Cadwallader who left his firm to represent Trump. who's pretty well known. So, you know, he, you've got to think they're going to file a motion for bill particulars, and then what if assuming that that's granted, the judge essentially is going to require the government to put forward a more detailed statement of exactly what they're charging Trump with. In other words, what are the other crimes? What statutes exactly? What's their theory? I mean, that's what I would really want to know if I'm 
on the defense side is like not just what the statutes are, but exactly how this statement of facts connects to those in some way. So right. I think they're entitled to know that. And and frankly, I, I have to go beyond that, Asha, and say that I think everybody is entitled to know that here. I mean, the the, the man who's the immediate past president of the United States is being indicted and this is the first time ever a president or former president has been indicted. And he's being indicted, by the way, for allegedly cheating his way into the, you know, the election effectively by suppressing information. And you're not telling us exactly why you think this violated the law and how. I, I just think that that's problematic for in, on a lot of levels. And it's unfair to the defense, but it's just problematic more broadly. You mentioned that this is not unusual for it to be pleaded this way? It's not unusual to have an indictment that just has like a bunch of counts and some bare bones, um, you know, uh, allegations without the state, without even, without a lot of detail in that indictment. The statement of facts is a man, apparently a Manhattan only thing. Like if you get indicted in Queens, you don't get a statement of facts or so I'm told by by defense attorneys in Queens. Um, but it's a Manhattan thing that apparently they came up with because the prior DA Morgenthau used to say things publicly that weren't in the indictment. And so they came up with this way of having a more formalized way of doing this, say, putting their facts out there when there's no conspiracy charge. But, you know, this other crimes thing is the issue. And, you know, basically, you know, what I what I think the feedback I'm getting from folks who practice heavily in Manhattan is, yeah, this is problematic and they should have done it differently, but they'll be able to get away with it. But, you know, because, you know, there's going to be a bill of particulars that's going to be requested and uh, and, you know, that's going to ultimately set it out. But it's just it's not what I think a lot of a lot of practitioners would have done if they were the prosecutors in this case. It's certainly not what I would have done. Um, I mean, I have to say, you know, from talk, and we could talk more about this. I mean, from the more and more I've talked to people in who practice in Manhattan, you know, the more I think that, you know, some of the issues that gave me concern over the past weeks, I'm less concerned about. But I will say this is definitely not like a really very buttoned down case, you know, and, and I'll give you to just draw an analogy, the closest analogy I can think of from my time as a federal prosecutor is the, the indictment of Brad Bogoyevich, who was the governor of Illinois at the time that my office indicted him. I was not on the trial team or anything for that case. So don't, don't, I don't want anyone to suggest, think that I'm suggesting that, but I know a lot about what happened. And, and there was just a lot of work that went in to ensure that that was the most airtight case possible. And the amount of lawyering and effort that went into that was immense. It, it down to figuring out every question that would be asked on cross examination in you know you know a whole sort of crowdsourcing within that office and a lot of work and many many people were requisitioned uh, to be part of that team in one way or another. And I, I just I don't get the sense here that there's the same sort of airtight case that's been built. Um, and that's, that is a little concerning. This is the same DA that was reluctant to move forward with the case as it stood when he first came in and Cy Vance left and he didn't feel it was ready. And there was all kinds of drama and people left and, you know, there was all the stuff. Right. I, I mean, to me, it would just seem really weird if he's 
crowdsourcing illegal areas. Like, yeah, I'm still figuring it out. And if that is the case, if he doesn't, if if he hasn't connected the dots yet for whatever reason, why bring it right now? Yeah, it's very it's it's very hard to understand. I mean, a cynical view would be well. He made what he thought was the right judgment call, saw the intense backlash from his constituents and decided that, you know, he, you know, he needed to become the first person to indict Trump. I, I mean, I, I will say that just to be clear from talking to people who have spent many years in the Manhattan DA's office, you know, this crime is a relatively straightforward crime to prove. In other words, uh, false statements in business records because, the, you know, if you have a false statement in a business record, it gets you, uh, you, you can kind of, you generally know that going in and that gets you a lot of the way there because some of the, some of the elements that are in other contexts more difficult to prove. So intent to defraud is something we've talked about on past podcasts because that's usually the major hurdle in a fraud case for the prosecution. And it's hard to see here. There's some problems with you would think proving that because here, these are just business records that are stored in the, you know, in the files at Trump organization. It's not like they're even sent to anybody. Um, but for this statute, the, the burden's actually lower generally under New York law. You don't need to show all of that. You just need to show that the records are deceptive, which they, I mean, on their face, they are. So I, I do think that there are some strong points to this, but. It just, I think the real question here, Ash, and I don't have a, a ready answer, but I think the question is, you know, partly, do you hold presidents to a higher bar or a lower bar, so to speak? And in my former office, there was this sense that when we had a big case, we needed against some, you know, the, the governor or the speaker of the house, we indicted both of them during the time I was there. Uh, um, those needed to be airtight cases. It almost was like a higher standard. We were holding them to lower standard in a way because they're saying, hey, if you're the governor, you can get away with doing a lot of stuff. And unless we have an airtight case, we won't bring it. But, you know, maybe you, you, maybe you just, you charge any case you have that's reasonable against somebody like that because you should hold them to a higher bar. Like anything that looks like it, it could be a chargeable crime you bring. But I think, this isn't like that. I'm not saying this is a, 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 a kind of a, a bad case necessarily, but it's certainly uh, far from uh, a slam dunk. I feel like right now we just don't know still. Like, I don't know that we're that much farther along than we were like yesterday when we were waiting, right? Like, I mean, we don't know what evidence he's amassed, right? This was not, to me, I was expecting the kind of indictment we saw in the Mueller investigation, you know, like hmm. the Internet Research Agency or when they hacked the DNC server or the Oath Keepers indictment where it's like a play by play of like, you know, here. And I, I know those are conspiracy cases, but really kind of getting into the weeds where you actually get a sense of the evidence the breadth and the depth of evidence that they have. And you're just like, oh shit, like they totally got these people, you know? And so I, I suppose, I mean, we, they, they have much more evidence beyond this 12 page statement of facts. Like that's not, I assume that those are not the only things they could prove. I don't know, Asha. I mean, I, I gotta tell you, if I was the Manhattan DA, which I am not, uh, clearly not, um, I wouldn't be like playing, like holding my cards close to the vest with this. Like if I had some killer piece of evidence, I wouldn't like 
hide it from a statement of facts. I don't know. I mean, that that is a concern, I think, right now is, yes, we haven't seen all the evidence. Yes, there may be more evidence out there. But he put his cards on the table here, and there's some questions about it. I mean, like I said, it's not like they can't prove the case, and you know he's got a good statute to work with. It's pro prosecutor statute, and you know they 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 handle those cases all the time. But like, there are some issues here, and it's not like there's a lot here that was like a surprise, right? I mean, yes, the Dorman thing, okay, right? Yes, like I thought, you know, you one thing you highlighted, Asha, that I thought was interesting was you know you made the point on Twitter that. Um, there was this paragraph about like basically trying to stiff stormy and, you know, Hey, let's delay the payment as long as possible. Cause if I win, then I don't need to pay her that sort of thing. But like, which is interesting and is helpful to, to the prosecution, but like there's not that much else there. That's new. Almost the rest of this, we already knew. Right. Right. Um, a lot of it is taken from Cohen's plea deal. A lot of it is taken from AMI's non-prosecution agreement. Um, some of it is taken from the Mueller report. They actually quote Robert Costello, who's, um, you know, because they, so the, the significance of that paragraph is we, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts is if you're going down the campaign finance road, Trump's defense is, well, I wasn't doing this to hide this from, you know, to, to try to not, um, disclose this because of the election, I wanted to prevent personal embarrassment and embarrassment to Melania and my family. And the idea that he was perfectly fine with the story coming out after the election. Um, and in fact, he believed that it would have no value after the election, um, that he wouldn't even have to pay Stormy for it, I think goes directly to the fact that this was only about his election chances and not about um, embarrassing himself. And then the pieces about Costello and the pressure campaign on Michael Cohen, I thought was interesting too, because that was getting to the the statement of facts is laying out, you know, all the pressure that Trump and his lawyers were putting on Michael Cohen not to flip. And at that point, again, the Stormy Daniels payment, the existence of it had come out. So the only thing that they would need Cohen to not flip on is how they were, you know, structuring this repayment and et cetera, which means that mm -hmm. they knew that it was right. criminal in some way. So there were, there were, I thought there were some interesting tidbits in there. Um, but again, there's nothing to apply it to. Like, it's not like, aha, this, if he can prove this, this, you know, is the smoking gun for this element of this crime because we don't know which one it is yet. Yeah. There's very, yeah. There's very little meat on the bones. Mm -hmm. I guess I'll. T I'm gonna do, give a hot take. Here will be well, my hot take. Yeah, give Asha. me, give me. Wait, before your hot take, I do want to say, like, okay, there are other people who think this is super, super strong. Oh yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of them, right? I mean, reading the I, I I'm supposed to be instead of recording podcasts, I'm supposed to be working on like two different op eds. And and as I was doing, I was like, oh, what are what's ever? Oh, there's a lot of other people who've written much faster than me, and they've already got these op eds out there, and they're all like. They, they almost sound like, I don't know if Alvin Bragg's ghost writing these things, but they, they sound really good. Right? It's the so New York Times had published an op-ed. It's like the strongest case ever, right? I, I don't know how anyone practicing law would say. I mean, I, there's some very impressive people who wrote it, I, but I just, I just don't see that. 
Yeah. And then on the other end, there are people like, this is a dud. This has nothing. You know, I when I was about to go on TV and there was a Trump guy right before me that's like, you know, this is politically motivated because they put every single check into a different count. And yeah. And I mean, it turns out like that's how you have to plead in New York. I mean, it's just a mainly a form thing. An important point, by the way, that you and I have discussed offline, but I should mention here from my conversations with a lot of Manhattan lawyers is basically the law in New York is that if you charge more than one crime in a single count, it gets dismissed. Like that's the remedy, which is really a problem for prosecutors there. So they're very careful to charge everything separately. So that's that's why you have so many counts. That's really the... Yeah. So it's not, it wasn't brag, like trying to make this look more serious than it is or something. That's, that's how they have to. So I think it's like, you have these two ends of the spectrum of like, you know, this is nothing. It's going to get thrown out tomorrow. And then like, this is the best case ever. And I think what we're saying is it's more complicated. Now I want your hot take. All right. So here's my hot take. I think in the end, this case is not even going to matter. I So one thing that I've really, I spent time drilling down with New York lawyers is speedy trial act stuff. Because one strategy would be, like if let's just say the guy wasn't running for president and wasn't, you know, kind of crazy, you know, and I was quarterbacking this, I'd be like, you know what, this is a fairly weak case. Let's rush it to trial. And then we'll let like the stronger cases kind of, we'll push those out and try to get a, a win early. And potentially maybe help strengthen our position to some extent. But what I've learned is that even if you want a speedy trial, you aren't going to get a speedy trial uh, anytime soon uh, in in the state of New York right now, and certainly in Manhattan. There's like I think you're the speedy trial act in New York is something like six months. Um, but then every, all the time with the motions are 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 excluded. So like if if you make a motion, the the clock's off. And then if the judge is considering your motion, the clock's off. And then if you do a motion to re-argue it, which apparently you kind of have to do when there's new circumstances that come up in New York under New York law, uh, you have to re-motion and re-argue. That also stops the clock. And so effectively, even if they were trying to rush this, this wouldn't happen until 2024. And for all practical purposes, this is, you know, most likely this is wouldn't happen until after the election unless Trump was trying to rush it. Like he doesn't need the delay for this case to get get pushed out. So I think what's going to happen is other cases are just going to pop up. They're going to be way stronger than this one. I mean, that that Mar-a-Lago case from the public, public reports looks a lot stronger to me. I, I just have the feeling that by the time the rubber meets the road, I mean, Trump to me, if he delays everything, is just going all in on trying to win the presidency again. And if he doesn't win... Uh, he's going to be left with a really difficult situation facing all these indictments. And I just think in the end, this one's not going to be the one that we're focused on. So it's really interesting right now, but maybe not so so much in the future. It, fe- like, it feels momentous because it's the first and certainly there's like, you know, it's historical, but it's going to become overshadowed. Yeah, my hot take on this um, and then we can wait for our next episode to talk about this more. But my hot take is, so I used to be obsessed with um, reading books about serial killers. Okay. I'm not, I can't wait to hear where this is going. Okay. (laughs) um, Especially like the profiling books and stuff like Mm Mindhunter and things like that. And one of the things that they would talk about is how like the perpetrator would like, 
refine the crime, right? Like they would start out and they'd make like mistakes and then they'd like get better and then like learn what they're good at and then kind of continue to do it and get better and better. So I think the Stormy Daniels is really just the beginning of the progression of the serial election crimes. Wow. So this was like kind of like the, you know, let's let's do the campaign finance violation. Um, seems now like relatively speaking, like, yeah, just another, you know, campaign finance violation. But then it progresses to welcome welcoming Russian interference, which progresses to obstructing exposure of the Russian interference, to asking for the Zelensky quid pro quo to finally coming up with this whole scheme with Eastman to develop a fake slate of electors and attack Congress. You know, instead of, instead of drinking wine, you should be writing that up. That would be interesting. That is an op-ed that I think I, I'm I'm not probably not going to put the behavioral profiles. of That's not going to be your headline. (laughs) Yeah. The birth of a serial killer. Right. The birth of a serial election crimer. Wow. Very hot take indeed. I'll give you that. Hi, I'm Moji Alawodeyal from the Feminist Buzzkills Live Pod, the only podcast that helps you navigate the news in this post-pro anti-abortion hellscape. Each week with co-hosts Marie Khan and Liz Winstead, we dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with providers and activists working on the ground. The cherry on top is we have amazing comedy guests who help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzz Kills Live drops Fridays wherever you pod. Listen and subscribe because when BS is popping, we pop off. So before we go, it's been a pretty busy day for both of us. I don't know who's been busier. Probably you. I'm just guessing. I don't know. We've both been pretty busy today. I don't know. You probably, I was basically like strapped to a chair in a mobile studio. Like a van for like five hours. It's like a kidnap van, but there's more lighting. <laughs> it, is. <laughs> it is. It's totally, it looks like a surveillance van or a serial killer van, right? Like in Silence of the Lambs where he like, um, you know, throws the women in there. But when you open it up, it's not full of like weird tools and, and things. It's actually got like a, a whole camera and backdrop and stuff like that. So... For me, I mean, it's not like this stuff ever happens at convenient times. And I have a day job like that actually is my main job that pays the bills. So I was meeting a really important client that, and we had the big plans today where we were going to have a meeting with their entire legal department and me to figure out different stuff I could work on for them, for big company. I had to go. So I was basically up in the morning doing like TV hits, radio hits in the morning in between meetings for work. And then I drove into the city, did radio hits on the way driving in, met with my client for over two plus hours, did a a TV hit at their headquarters in a conference room, then drove back all the while talking to like Manhattan lawyers, trying to figure out what to make of some of this stuff that was a real head scratcher, and texting with you at the same time and then spend all this time either TV hits, radio hits, 
uh, and uh, dealing with a dog who was down for business. The business, uh, business was, uh, you know, playing with his new toys uh, and wondering why I was ignoring him when I was trying to be on television or whatever. That's crazy. And dealing with all these requests, I'm sure you get the same thing, right? Like every random radio station or TV station trying to... Yeah. I mean, on in, on news days like this, it just becomes inundated. I had to teach today. So I basically did not prep. Fortunately, I know my the stuff that I was teaching today because I've taught it for like the last 10 years. Um, and then, get this, I had an Italian exchange student arriving today. <laughs> To stay with our oh family for two weeks. It was like so random. I was like, oh my God, like really? And um, I was like, this poor kid, like I'm going to be like sitting at my dining table doing TV hits and he's going to be like, who is this? What have I gotten myself into? Um, and so I had to pick him up and came back. Yeah. Australian broadcast, no, whatever, <laughs> their BBC equivalent. Um, and now this podcast. But the difference between you and me is I get to go to bed now. And you're going to be up writing these two op-eds. Yeah, I'm going to be on a, I have a BBC radio hit that I'm doing after this. And then I've got two op-eds that I'm going to be working on. I I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get them done. Uh, we'll see. But I've got to get up 6, starting at 6.20 a.m. tomorrow. I've got radio hits, TV hits, and then tons of different meetings for work. And I mean, it is what it is. Like, I just, I have a job. It, does it ever hit you, Renato, that like, I mean, this this is a historical day, right? Like, and we're a part of the conversation. Like, if I feel very privileged. I do, too. To be able to comment on it, that people are listening, that, you know, I, I don't know, that my opinion matters to people. I don't know. It's it's humbling, and it's nice. It, it is. No, I agree with that, 100%. I mean, I think it, it's a... it's. For me, it doesn't make any economic sense or anything else to do this. It's like it's it make, would make much more sense to focus on practicing law. But I think there's there's times where I I think that there's a lot of disinformation out there, maybe sort of not well informed takes, and so I try very hard to do the opposite. And part part of it is like you said, it's very humbling, and you want I think I want to sort of make the record as correct as I can for for folks. Yeah. And just so people know, I mean, Renato and I did go to law school together, but we really, I mean, I don't know that we really knew. I mean, I remember you, but I don't think we hung out together. Um, You were a year below me. Um, But we basically reconnected at the beginning of the Trump administration because we were both on Twitter and we're both giving our hot takes. And, um, you know, these TV networks started calling and... Yeah, somehow we we connected and exchanged notes, and I I came to you for quotes on things when I was writing stuff, and um, so there are silver linings, I guess, to the Trump years, maybe. Without a doubt, sort of. And this was one of them. M S W Media. I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. 
You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say, so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Give.